Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Happy Good Friday. Happy Good Friday and happy Easter Monday to our listeners, or perhaps yeah. to these listeners who fall behind, in which case, happy Christmas. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Rosh Hashanah. Exactly. Etc. Um, well, look, I, th- I was thinking about this. I think it's the first time we've recorded on Good Friday. Do you think we should be getting double bubble for this? Uh, but no, I was thinking I should sort of, you know, deliver you an Easter egg or something. I haven't had so much as a mini egg so far this year. Sunday is the day, isn't it? Do you go big on eggs in your house? For the children, yeah. What's your view of hot cross buns? I'd rather pay two a penny than one a penny. What does that mean? Well, that song, one a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. Over my head. I can't, you can't even blame that on it being the 90s, Ed. I think it's like a traditional song from ye olde days. No, I was going to say... Gordon Brown could take no responsibility for this. <laughs> what What is your view on hot cross buns? They're quite sort of Moorish hot cross buns. Yeah, you're not wild for them. I'm not not mad about a raisin. Ah, mm. I like a raisin. I like, like a raisin in, in context. I like it in a, a in a box of raisins, or maybe even in some couscous. But I don't really enjoy it in a cake or, or bread type product. That's so interesting. I would have had you down as a sort of. Uh, Sort of raisin curious. <laughs> I'm impossible. This is the thing about me. I'm impossible to pin down. You think you know me. No, and then I, I shapeshift. I would have thought you were sort of quite kind of heterogeneous in your raisin <laughs> tastes. That, that's really, that's, that's. Sorry, I feel like I've, I feel like I am in some way a personal disappointment to you. No, you're never a personal disappointment to me. Uh, in fact, we should tell the listeners that we had an absolute blast this week because we were able to see each other at uh, socially distanced for work reasons because we were recording the bonus the bonus interview for the audio book of my book yeah but it was it was i walked into the recording studio and, and um you were behind the glass and you didn't see me at first and i heard you doing a narration i thought you sounded really good how how has it been um reading out loud for days on end it's a, it's quite a it's a, it's definitely an art form what's the knack the knack is to have the um, pictures in your mind of what you're talking about, because that then slows you down so that you don't rush through it. That's what they say. And it's sort of to try and be in the moment. Well, you very kindly got some advice from John Ronson for me about what, what how because he's done audiobooks before, and it was to 
be in the moment. Uh, it's the kind of thing I get a little bit obsessive about. Chris, who was the producer, I have never known, is polymath the right word? I mean, he was such an extraordinary polymath. He speaks a number of languages. And there's a quote at the beginning of a chapter from an Icelandic uh, trade unionist. And he he was able to tell me how I should pronounce the little funny Icelandic squiggle. Wow. And you know what you just did that inadvertently? You really did a little teaser for your book by letting us all know that there's a quote from an Icelandic trade unionist in there. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> sexy, isn't it's it? It's going to get it flying off the shelves. Also, what's good is that it sort of... Nobody would have predicted that there would be a quote from an Icelandic trade unionist in my book. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, Beyonce maybe, but uh, but you know, an Icelandic trade unionist. Well, there's a shocker. We should also say, shouldn't we, that we're we're recording this at a sort of earlier time than normal, mm-hmm. and I think. I mean, I don't think I'm a great morning person, but I'd say with, and I mean this in the nicest way. Both you and Joel look pretty bleary-eyed. <laughs> well, I'm I'm awful. I mean, I've got a, a, a kid which has forced me to be more more of a morning person than I ever was. But I think I can hear him actually. Gene spilling onto the mic. I mean, he's two floors down, but he's got such a loud voice. He gets it from Sarah, not me. Anyway, but so I really want to, because I wanted to try and spend a bit of Good Friday with my family. So um, we decided to do this early. So I do apologise. You're not going to make them go cold water swimming, are you? Maybe. Right. What are we talking about this week, then? This week, Jeff, we're talking about workers' rights in the gig economy. In February, a major Supreme Court case, which I've actually read and it's really interesting, ruled that Uber had to treat its drivers as workers, making them entitled to the minimum wage, holiday pay and other rights. Then last week, a number of high-profile investors announced they would not invest in Deliveroo's initial public offering on the London Stock Exchange due to concerns about workers' rights. We're asking whether these two events could point to a watershed moment for working conditions in the gig economy. We're talking to James Farrar, one of the claimants in the Uber case, about the story of his legal fight and what he hopes will happen next. We're also talking to Kelly Housen from a project called Fair Work about whether we're on the verge of a wider shift in attitudes to rights in the gig economy. And finally, we're talking to Martin Buttle from Share Action about how investors can use their power to push for better working conditions. So what's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Look, I know I am like a stuck record at the moment talking about the Beatles, but it's it's occupying so much of my time. But um, it's a podcast recommendation, and it's called All About the Girl. And it's these two young women I interviewed this week, and I found them so inspiring to talk to. They've started a podcast because they think, and quite rightly, that people don't talk enough about the women in the Beatles story, not just the wives and girlfriends, but the mothers and other women who were influential. So they've started this podcast. So I interviewed them for my radio show. And it was so inspiring talking to them. Firstly, I mean, they, they knew a bunch of stuff that I didn't, which was really exciting. And, and then secondly, they just really illuminated this whole other world of Beatles fandom of, you know, people in their teens and twenties. And I love it because I just feel that, you know, as a fan and as somebody who's quite obsessed with it, there are a lot of people who look and sound like me in this world. And it's, it was just really invigorating to talk to some people who don't fit that mold. That is so interesting. So that's me. What's what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I am back. I am back 
in the water. Back, back, back. Like Flipper the Dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> Aquaman. You know, where the Flipper is a dolphin. Um, yes, I went back in yesterday um, and, well, I was quite anxious about it because I thought, well, it's going to be, I haven't, I, you know, I gave up on the cold showers, singing Ronsomen in the shower. It's sort of, you know, I stopped doing that, you know, the sort of staying in the cold water zone. I thought it was going to be difficult. And going in was quite um, uh, frigid, I would say. But but no, it turns out nine degrees centigrade is a lot warmer than four degrees centigrade. There we go with the centigrade again. Oh, well, I'll tell you a story about that in a second, but... Uh, nine degrees centigrade is 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 warmer than four degrees centigrade, um, and so although it was a bit of a shock, a bit of a shocker to begin with, it was really nice. And actually, when I got out, it just wasn't bad at all. It wasn't nearly. I wasn't. I wasn't sort of shaking like a leaf as I did with the four degrees. So it was. It was. It, it's good, and I'm. I'm back. And honestly, I felt so. And was was the shrinkage was the shrinkage any different given the long period away from? I don't think we're going to go into that. But okay. the. Uh, but you know what's interesting. You came to see me on Wednesday and you were saying to me, you know, shouldn't you get back into the cold water swimming? And I said, oh, maybe, you know, and I'd sort of given, I'd slightly given up on it mentally. And I think you kind of, you gave me a little bit of a push to get, to get going. And so, you know, it was, it was, um, it was really good. If you ever need a literal push off the diving board, I'd be, yeah, I'd be glad to oblige. I don't know. I saw people jumping in. I don't think I could jump in. I think that might be quite dangerous. So do you ease yourself in very slowly? Not that slowly, but slowly. Uh, the um, No, the thing I was going to tell you was that as I was reading my, the audio book, in some parts of the book, it says four, two degrees C. And then in another part of the book, it said two degrees Celsius, right? So I, so the first time it said C, I said centigrade. And the next bit, I got to Celsius. And so I just sort of read it. And then I said to the guy, no, 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 we can't have that. And he's like, well, no, it's fine. It doesn't matter, really. Nobody's going to care. And I was like, no, 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 we're not going to have Celsius, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I, I was like, that Jeff Lloyd is not going to win on the, old, on the old centigrade Celsius thing. So, you know, I was like, two degrees centigrade. <laughs> <laughs> or two, it's, it's two degrees centigrade or two degrees, but it is sure as hell not two degrees Celsius. Why are you so hell bent on sounding like an anachronism? But what? Because I'm, you know, I've sort of taken a strong, I've made a strong choice, as my friend Paul Greengrass would say, and I'm sticking to my <laughs> strong choice. No U turns. No U turn. This gentleman's not for turning. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking about this landmark Supreme Court judgment. And to do that with us, we're really delighted to be joined by one of the people who was a co-claimant in that recent Uber case, as well as founder of the Worker Info Exchange and General Secretary of the App Drivers and Couriers Union, James Farrer. Hello. Hello. So, I mean, it's it's an unlikely start to this story because it, it starts with some vomit. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think it starts with a convergence of a couple of things. Uh, but for me, definitely, it was um, it was that pile of vomit. Um, I was driving from Canary Wharf to Shoreditch with some passengers, um, one of whom was became too ill to continue traveling. And um, 
uh, so we had to cancel the journey, but uh, the the passengers became a bit abusive, and I ended up getting uh, assaulted as well as having to deal with um, uh, with emissions, and um, it caused me to report it to the police. So, so what happened next? How did it progress from there? Well, I reported to the police, and the police wanted me to identify a passenger, and and um, I, I thought, well, no problem, great. I'm working for a digital app, everything. Everything is tracked and traced, and this will be, you know, this is one of the benefits of working for Uber. And um, so I told Uber, and they said no, they couldn't. They couldn't tell me who my passenger was, um, but they would tell the police. But when the police approached, they wanted the police to go to court and get an order, and um, they just dragged their feet for about ten weeks. And I really couldn't understand why they were doing that because I was I was curious about where duty of care lay in work in this type of working arrangement. And when I started to look at the contract, I understood really well what was happening because Uber contracts um, have been set up that the driver is directly pa- um, contracting with the passenger uh, and that Uber just simply acts as a intermediary and agent. And so it, it didn't want to get involved because for three reasons. One, it didn't want to trigger any kind of public liability with customers, with passengers. It didn't want to trigger an employment relationship with me by an expressing a duty of care. Uh, but also in staying in this agency mode, it can argue to the revenue that it, it is not providing a valuable supply. And so for those reasons, Uber didn't want to get involved because the whole house of cards could come down, which it eventually did. So I'm, I'm curious to know I mean, just a little bit about your background. How long had you been working for Uber? What was the, the appeal of it? Well, I had, um, I, I had left a job in tech um, just a few months before then, and I was in the midst of setting up um, an NGO, and I thought it would be useful. I was an archetypal geek worker. I was going to work for Uber on the side and earn a little bit of money and to you know supplement what I was trying to do. So this much vaunted flexibility that they you know they 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 say is what they want to offer to the drivers these companies. In in your case, that that was a big positive. Oh, absolutely, and it still is for most people working for in the gig economy. They really want to have this flexibility but that flexibility is always held to hostage um, and the, the, you know there there is a certain myth about flexibility too it's that you know it takes an uber driver about 30 hours a week just to break even so where, where is the flexibility you know really the flexibility ends up being you know the flexibility to work endless hours to 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 make something decent that that's the real flexibility and and this case really started with uh, a, an employment tribunal in 2000 and 16 it's a long story um there there were victories there were then appeals by uber in 2017 and 2018 there was the this supreme court uh, judgment finally in february do you want to just tell us a, a little bit you know give us an overview of that that story of how it progressed over these few years well, it was it was really interesting. The 2016 um, tribunal claim, and in some respects, you know, we didn't know how that would go, how it, it was the first case of its type that went to tribunal. Um, it, it was fun, you know. We we went there. I, I, I spent about a day being cross examined, and you know, it it was on one side of the courtroom. There was all us minicab drivers. You, you could tell us because we had you know ill shaped suits and and driving shoes. And, and on the other side, you had all these gig economy executives, you know, they were all tanned and beautiful and whatnot. But, um, you know, they got destroyed. That, that, that first ruling was really, really, um, it, it, was, it was, you can feel the, dri- the anger dripping from, from that ruling from the judge. You know, he, he quoted Shakespeare, he quoted Milton. It was a it was really, really solid, hard ruling. 
And it was much needed because at the time, you know, what the gig and they're still doing it, what these gig economy companies like to do is they say, you know, technology has reshaped work and it's reshaped the relationship we have with work. And the, you know, the law doesn't fit anymore. There's a new paradigm being shifted. But each of these rulings, you know, are, are emphatic. The, the, the judiciary aren't wringing their hands and saying we don't know how to apply the law because technology has changed everything. These were very, very strong rulings and um, really strong on a couple of issues. What One is that that was went to the Supreme Court as well is working time. You know, so Uber's position is you're, you're not a protected worker. You're an independent contractor. You're running your own business. Um, but then the next question is, well, what, when are you a worker if you are a worker? So Uber's fallback position is that you can only be a worker while you have one of their passengers in your vehicle. But the, the uh, tribunal originally ruled, no, you are a worker from the time that you log into the platform, make yourself available. And this is where Milton com- comes in because he quoted Milton. He said, they too, they serve those who stand and wait. You know, you are serving their network that gives them a competitive advantage of speed to customer. And, and therefore, you are working for them as you're as you're spending your time waiting and being on demand to that platform. You must be paid for that time. And the Supreme Court has upheld that. Um, but that's that's one area that Uber still is still um, in defiance, I would say, and will require further litigation. So, so there are there are two main sets of issues here, aren't there, James? One is about the level of control that Uber exercises over its drivers, which the Supreme Court concludes means that they are workers. And secondly, when that should apply and should it simply apply to the time that people are on um, uh, in the middle of, you know, uh, a, a, a journey with a passenger or more, or more generally. Um, how to talk to, it was obviously a long legal battle, as Jeff has said. What did it feel like? Uh, you know, that, that after all, you know, you'd gone through, I think, was it sort of seven years from the first, from the vomit incident? Oh, it was, it was absolutely joyous victory. Um, but I also have to, I have to be honest and point out that there's an absurdity about it that, you know, precarious workers would take seven years just to assert the right to minimum wage. This is, this can't be right. And, uh, this, you know, that, and that isn't really a realistic solution. You know, what, it is the government's job to enforce employment law. And, and that hasn't been happening. And, th- and that's the real shame. And that's, that's something that hasn't really been talked about enough is that what, why did we have to do it? Why, why was it down to us to have to assert these very basic rights for vulnerable people? And the Supreme Court, that, you know, that, that was the surprise. And that was the thing that was a little bit even emotional for me is that the way that the, bench put this is that it's very simple at the end of the day the purpose of the legislation is to protect vulnerable workers it's as simple as that and so when you have these artificial contracts that uber and all the gig economy platforms use to try and recast that reality um, that you are you are you're an independent contractor you're you're paddling your own canoe and um, if the purpose of these contracts and indeed working practices is to purposely disqualify you from the statutory protections that you should have and must have and really need to have, then they won't stand in law anymore. Um, and that, that, that's, that's a huge moral judgment to make. Um, and it was really a battle between the business right to contract uh, and the sanctity of commercial contracts in business versus the right of workers to be able to interpret those contracts as employment relationships. And it was the black letter lawyers that said, no, this is an abuse. 
and um, don't expect to come back to court and with these types of fictitious contracts and, and expect a legal protection, you won't get it. And that's what's so important about our ruling for the rest of the gig economy. And I think that's why the IPO for, for Deliveroo went so badly wrong is because now, now there is clarity that if you set up these types of contracts to disqualify workers across the gig economy and then, then expect a rough ride in the courts, you won't get away with it. And James, uh, it's right to say, isn't it, that there were, there was important union involvement in this, including your union, the GMB union and others. It would be very difficult, impossible for an individual to sustain a challenge like this to the Supreme Court without the support of unions. And in the end, going forward, it is going to be collective action that win the overall struggle and end these um, poor conditions in the gig economy because we can't, you know, we can't rely on miracles in the courtroom every time. And so I think three things made these thing, this this ruling, uh, these changes possible. It is good old fashioned shoe leather organizing. And I don't accept that there's anything new or different about how you organize in a gig economy. There isn't. It is, it is good old fashioned shoe leather organizing. It is campaigning and communication so people understand what's happening in the industry. Um, and you repeat that message again and again. And then it is strategic litigation as well. But it is the combination of those three things and collective action and union power. There's a really important new um, a purpose for trade unions now in tackling these conditions uh, in the gig economy and beyond. What do you want government to be doing to if you like, ensure that the 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 next version of you doesn't have to wait seven years, all the other people in the gig economy who are facing the situation that you faced don't have to wait seven years or more to get the kind of justice that, that you seek. What 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 does government need to do? Well, the, the government absolutely must come in and enforce the law. They cannot leave this to, to vulnerable workers. One of the things I, I found remarkable was that, you know, I, I naively believed when we got the ruling in, in 2016 that, that that was the end. You know, everything was fixed now. But Uber was the only player in, in town at the time. And since then, three or four international apps arrived into the market with the exact same abusive contracts. And I just thought, wow, that, this is just completely contemptuous of the law. We've, we have a ruling on the record and we must enforce the laws, not just, you know, not just for, for people who are, are well off, but for, for people who are below minimum wage, for people who are being exploited in an almost brutal way. We have to step in and protect those people. And, and that just simply wasn't happening. So the government need to enforce the law, but they also need to want to do that. At the moment, we see they don't. James, let me ask you finally about um, the consumer and the role of the consumer in this. What would your advice be to people about using Uber, what they should be campaigning for and that kind of thing? I'm ambivalent about this a little bit because I do recognize that, you know, there are a lot of people who um, are in precarious circumstances themselves um, and need transportation options and they need it to be cheap. Um, and it's very difficult to turn around to, to say to people who, who are in difficult circumstances that they must take responsibility for all of this. That's the goal of the regulator and, and the government. Um, but I do, I have a little less sympathy for people, or for companies who use it as a corporate service. So there is an Uber for business service. Addison Lee similarly has big contracts um, with city banks and so on who are supposed to have ethical supply chain policies. 
I, I have I have little sympathy for them. They knew what the situation was. We've written to them, and um, nobody should be using it as a corporate service without taking responsibility for the conditions of the workers that are delivering that service to their their people. Well, look, James Farah, it's been a long journey from your um, original decision to to take up this issue to your victory in the Supreme Court. I'm sure it was very arduous and difficult along the way and lots of pressure, but I think you have made a difference to many, many people, and it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So to talk further about, about the wider issues that have been raised in the conversation with James, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Kelly Housen, who is a researcher at Fair Work, a project of the Oxford Internet Institute promoting good working practices in the gig economy. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, perhaps you can tell us, first of all, what Fair Work is and, and what work you do. So Fair Work is an action research project, um, a global research project. And by action research, we mean, of course, we are all academics, we're doing scholarly work, but we're also carrying out research that um, we hope will influence uh, the situation and have an impact on improving working conditions for gig workers. And the way we do that is um, we've developed a series of principles of, of fair work in the gig economy, which we then apply to assess platforms in different places. Um, and we give them a score out of 10 based on um, how well they're complying with the principles. Uh, and we publish those scores on a yearly country league table. And so we're hoping that we can leverage some um, kind of competitive pressure to, to motivate and encourage platforms to um, reach these benchmarks of what we will consider fair work um, and to highlight the best and worst practices in the gig economy. Tell us about your view of the recent um, Uber ruling and the investor response to the Deliveroo IPO, uh, and whether they whether you think they indicate we're at a moment of change for rights in the gig economy. I think they certainly indicate that um, there's growing momentum for change. The Uber case especially has uh, implications for the wider gig economy, I think. The Supreme Court judgment, as we were discussing with James, is, is very interesting and important. And Uber has acted on part of the Supreme Court judgment, but it hasn't acted on one crucial part, which is about working time and whether mm. whether the minimum wage calculation applies to the whole period when an Uber driver is on the app uh, mm. or is logged into the app or just at the moments when an Uber driver has got a passenger and accepted a trip. Do you want to just talk about that and why that question is so important and has broader implications? We are really seeing now that this fight, that the, the um, gig workers' battles in the courts about their rights and entitlements is coming down to this question of working time. And the Supreme Court in their decision very clearly said that Uber – the. Uber's drivers are workers, uh, eligible for things like minimum wage, holiday pay, and pensions from the time they log onto the app to the time they log off, as you say. And that is a crucial distinction. And that because we know, especially since the pandemic, that Uber drivers and other gig workers, Deliveroo riders as well, are likely to spend a lot of time waiting between orders. 
and they don't have any control over the demand um, on their services. So with other forms of peace rate work, um, which just to explain peace rate work a little bit, this is what really characterizes the gig economy. It's why we call it the gig economy, where workers are paid by task rather than by hour. And previously, uh, peace rate work would have been more closely aligned with things like the agricultural sector or, or workers in textile factories where they're producing work and they can get paid more by being more productive. In the gig economy, workers don't necessarily have that control over uh, the demand for their services. So the only way they could improve their earnings is by being logged in for longer and longer hours. And so we know that Uber drivers might be sleeping in their cars or um, waiting at hotspots hoping for a ride. And where rides are, where there's not demand, those drivers are still contributing to Uber's operations. The reason that we as passengers can get rides relatively quickly is that there are a number of drivers logged on at any given time waiting to pick up passengers. So it'd be like security guards only getting paid if they tackled an intruder or uh, uh, an A&E nurse only uh, being paid for every broken leg. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's also like uh, only paying a retail worker for the time that there's a customer in the shop. Um, so that is the reason that drivers are at risk of falling below the minimum wage, of not being able to cover the costs of their shift, because also um, gig workers have to cover their own costs. Of course, they're paying insurance and maintenance on their vehicle. They're paying for fuel. Um and so once you factor in those costs, workers are, are often in danger of falling below the minimum wage. I mean, isn't this absolutely fundamental, Kelly? Because the truth is probably that the Uber business model and business models of other gig economy firms relies on not paying workers at least the minimum wage for those all the hours they're logged on, presumably. Yeah, so Uber's set the blueprint for the gig economy the world over. And um, Deliveroo has the exact same business model. You know, the gig economy is... The, the main characterizing feature of the gig economy is piece rate payment. Um, but I would not... You know, I'd hesitate to say that if min the minimum wage is implemented fairly in the UK gig economy, that these platforms can't survive. I think that these basic standards, are, um, sh all workers should, of course, be entitled to these basic standards. And we know that platforms are adaptable. So I don't think that paying the minimum wage is incompatible with um, the platform economy. I wanted to talk to you about the, the pandemic um, and how that shifted the debate. I know that Uber has provided some support. So has that kind of led to them being hoist by their own petard a little? Yes. So it's um, it's it's put them on a kind of slippery rhetorical slope, I suppose you can say. We, I, I think as a society, we've become much more aware perhaps of, of the services performed by gig workers and how much we rely on them, especially in the pandemic context. And so there's been a lot of pressure on Uber from um, government, but just from um, 
the public to protect their drivers in the pandemic context. And this has been the case for a lot of other platforms as well. Gig workers don't really have the option to shelter. Um, they're, they're, they, they don't have sick leave. They don't have holiday pay. So a lot of gig workers haven't had the choice but to go into work. But yes, Uber has put some protections in place for gig workers. And in a lot of places that supported workers' legal cases to say Uber has responsibility for our working conditions. Now, we're all about ideas to fix things on this uh, podcast. And I know at Fair Work, you have five principles that you advocate for. Uh, do you want to talk us through your I- ideas and principles for improving conditions in the gig economy? Sure. Uh, so our principles are pretty simple, actually. The five principles are fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management, and fair representation. Um, I've talked a bit about fair pay. Peace rate payments and high costs for workers mean that often they're on poverty wages, essentially. Fair conditions, um, a similar thing. Most gig economy platforms have a high level of control over workers' health and safety, but um, don't are not beholden to health and safety standards. Fair contracts in the gig economy um, is a little bit more complicated, but in some places we know that workers don't necessarily have access to the terms and conditions of their work. They're, of course, kind of unilaterally set by platforms and workers don't have a lot of... Um, ability to negotiate their contracts, which should really um, be the case if, if workers are self-employed and there's a even kind of power relationship there. I think it might be worth just expanding for our listeners the the um, this self-employment point, because it is obviously the fundamental issue that's going on here. You have in one of your papers a rather good uh, analogy about Starbucks, um, which is you say, imagine if you go into a Starbucks and you were told, well, Starbucks isn't actually employing the baristas. There are different baristas all offering you, you know, offering you coffee, but they're not actually employed by Starbucks and they're actually self-employed and they're only paid for when you're buying a coffee. I mean, we obviously think that was a, a and and Starbucks would say, well, we're simply a platform. I mean, we'd obviously think that was absurd, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's right. So the gig economy model up until now has really relied on this classification, contractual classification of workers as self-employed or independent contractors. Platforms say, we're just technology companies. We're just intermediaries. We connect the client and the worker. Um, that is, that position is becoming more and more tenuous because in reality, we know Platforms have a lot of control over those workers. The workers are, as the Supreme Court said, dependent on and subordinate to the platform in the case of Uber. And and what about, uh, I think a lot of us, yeah, we do things that are at odds with our principles. And I think a lot of us use things like Uber or Deliveroo at the same time with an uneasy feeling that if something's this cheap, somebody somewhere is paying for it. So on that, what can people listening do? Uh, to this now? What can they do to support this fight for rights in the gig economy? It's a difficult question, but I think being informed is really important. I, I'm a little bit sceptical sometimes of of 
um, claims about the ability of kind of ethical consumerism to solve these big structural issues. I do think that we should all make um, individual choices that are in line with our values. But for those of us who do use these services, and I am one as well, um, I think understanding workers' experiences, understanding their demands and supporting um, supporting workers' collective movements to assert those demands is is really important. Can, can I ask one other question, Kelly, which is there is a employment bill, which I think will be in the next Queen's speech or legislative programme in the UK. What is it that you would like to see government do to actually make a change here? I agree that action needs to come from government now. Um, and I think that on the basis of this quite historic decision to say that these particular gig workers are limby workers, that there needs to be more enforcement now from government. Um, so at the moment, platforms have been kind of largely getting away with um, misclassification. Or I would like to see... Uh, simply better enforcement of the law. Well, look, it's been incredibly enlightening. Uh, Kelly Housen, uh, a researcher at Fair Work, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Well, we're going to speak now to Martin Buttle, who is head of good work at Share Action. Hello, Martin. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for talking to us. And I'm, I'm so interested to talk to you specifically about the, the Deliveroo IPO. Um, but before we get into that, we, we have had Share Action on the podcast before, but can you just remind listeners what it is that Share Action does? So Share Action is a responsible investment charity, which works to ensure that the finance system is responsible for people and planet. And we work in two ways, really. So the first way, we hold a mirror up to the investment sector and to, in order to hold it accountable for its decisions and its actions. And the second way is that we convene uh, like-minded investors who, who share our values 
um, and use their their influence and power to uh, drive change on climate change, on health, on good work and human rights. So let's talk about this delivery IPO, because I I mean, it feels really significant to me. I, I can't really remember anything quite like this. Do you want to talk us through what, what's happened and uh, Share Action's role in it? It's really interesting because the, the Deliveroo IPO is probably one of the most uh, widely anticipated, or it was one of the most widely anticipated IPOs for several years. Two weeks ago, they were saying that they would raise about $8 billion, um, from the IPO. But, I mean, there have been long-running concerns about, you know, workers' rights, for particularly for the riders. They have low pay. There's been issues around health and safety. There's been issues around arbitrary taking them off the um, app. And so, uh, Share Action, we've been working with the IWGB, which is a trade union that represents these workers, for a year now. Um, and we've been trying to engage the private equity funds that have been funding um, Deliveroo up to the point of the IPO. Uh, at the end of last week, uh, 11 um, big institutional investors made public statements to say that they would not invest in, in Deliveroo. Um, because they had concerns, amongst other things, on the workers' rights at Deliveroo. Um, And eight of these 11 investors were actually members of our Good Work Coalition. And on on last Thursday, we'd actually convened um, these investors. We um, introduced them to Alex Marshall, who's the president of the IWGB, and um, and some of the riders, and we had a discussion about the, the issues there. And soon after that, you know, the, these public statements came out. Um, and, and so the Deliveroo IPO has, has been a disaster for Deliveroo. Um, uh, it fell 26% um, yesterday. And, um, and you know, th- those, those public statements um, probably were part of the reason why, why it fell. I mean, there's a whole set of other reasons too. But, but it is, I think it's very significant that these investors had made a public statement that um, they wouldn't be investing for worker rights reasons. And, and uh, you know, you can you can convince me otherwise, and I'm sure I'm being cynical, but I don't necessarily think of, uh, when I think of private equity, uh, the sort of broad stereotype that I have isn't necessarily um, uh, the, the, the type of um, p- person who is overly concerned about workers' rights. Is is it ethical or is it people looking at what could happen uh, in the future with litigation and regulation and thinking uh, about how that will affect this company's future profitability? Yes, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I would point out that uh, eight of the 11 were signed up to our Good Work Coalition and have had a track record of uh, lobbying um, UK companies on paying the living wage. But I think the, the, the regulatory um, environment um, is certainly a significant factor. And when you think of investors who have signed up to your good work principles, what, what is that shift? Um, you know, if, if we're not being cynical and not thinking about the ways that it's going to trip companies up in, in the future and trip bottom lines up in the future where's that where's that shift coming from 
it's a very significant um, trend within the investment sector, this um, what's called ESG integration, and that stands for environment, social and governance issues. Um, and, and I think a lot of investors are working very hard to integrate those topics into their investment decisions. Um, and 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 I think largely that it's been driven by climate change and, and the, the, the recognition that um, you know, we all face an existential crisis with climate change. But I mean, there's a lot of emerging legislation around the world. And, and so I think um, investors are recognising that. They're recognising that, um, that labour issues and the way that workers are treated is um, in a technical term material now. And so they are working very hard to, to work out um, how material and what they need to do to, to address those concerns. And, and how prevalent is it? I mean, um, so th- this, this change of thinking sounds significant, but is it still you know, quite a, a small minority in the investment sector? No, I, I would say it's one of the most significant trends within the investment sector. You know, you've got everybody from BlackRock, which is one of the largest um, investment firms in, in the world, um, now making statements about the importance of ESG factors. So, you know, what, where it might have been a, a niche thing uh, 10 years ago, it's now, it's now mainstream thinking. Let, let me ask you about how Share Action makes its sort of decisions about where to intervene and Deliveroo specifically. Now, now Deliveroo claim or Deliveroo say that at their busiest times, riders earn an average of thirteen pounds per hour for time uh, logged on to to the app. Um, they say that they've pushed for, or that they they would like to go further and provide greater benefits and security to self-employed riders, but they think there's a legal risk attached to that uh, because it could seem be seen as evidence of an employment type relationship. And they aren't very keen to put it mildly on the IWGB. They say that uh, uh, they're not objective and that and that they don't believe their survey. You've obviously reached your own judgment as share action about this. Just tell us how you reached it and what you what you think about the sort of issues in play. Well, I, I think we have to put this in the context of the fact that um, Share Action has been working on issues around living wage now since 2013. We're focused on the low paid. Um, but I think uh, over the last year or so, we've we've shifted to looking at in, insecurity of work because we recognise that, you know, it, uh, the quality of work is not just uh, measured by by how much you're paid on a sort of hourly basis, but also how much hours of work you have and how much visibility you have, what contracts you are on. And I think that has led us to to the gig economy and, and some of the gig economy business models. And I know that one of the things that um, Share Action has done over the years uh, very successfully, particularly in relation to climate change, is highlighting the power we all have through our ties to the investment system, e.g. through our pensions. I think our listeners will want to know if they care about the issues that you're talking about, what can they do to take part in your campaigns? So I think that there's two two things that they can do. First of all, we... Um we manage a network of volunteer activists who um, we can lend a share to um, and that would allow them to actually go to the AGM of a, a company um, and raise a question at that AGM. 
um, and, and we would co coordinate that. We would maybe suggest how to draft that question and what themes they might want to ask. But that more broadly, I think it would be important that, you know, through, through our pensions, and most of us have a pension, we are, uh, pension funds are managing our money and they have a, man a responsibility to manage it in our best interests. Um, so, you know, our, your listeners could definitely uh, write to their pension funds and let them know what what they think on various issues and what, what uh, issues concern them. And you can make it possible, if people go to your website, it, it, because that sounds slightly, that might sound slightly daunting to some people, you've got stuff on your website that facilitates people doing that so they know how to start, how, you know, what, what to write and so on. Yes, absolutely. We, we would be happy to help people on that. Well, look, Martin, I know what great work um, Share Action does. Uh, you've been incredibly kind to, to disrupt your Good Friday uh, to be with us. Uh, Martin Buttle from uh, Share Action, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So what did you think? I found it quite eye-opening. So I was vaguely aware of what had happened with the Deliveroo IPO, but I thought it was because I hadn't been ordering as many takeaways recently. I didn't realise there was this whole sort of... It is all about you, isn't it? Well, th that's, that's what I thought. No, I mean, I, I really loved it as an episode. Um, I thought James's story was incredible. I think somebody should buy the film rights when he described the mini cab yeah. drivers lined up in yeah. the Supreme Court with the tech executives, the slick executives on the other side. I thought that was, that was incredible. Um, and I, I also thought there was something which made me think is is kind of a, a byproduct cause for optimism uh a, a sort of rebirth of organized labor or connect collective bargaining because as we know union labourship outside of the public sector is low in this country it's desperately needed in the gig economy and is is this reframing of that as an issue something that's going to inspire more people to get involved in it no it's really interesting actually what struck me the most is that you know i'm obviously thinking well what do we need to do legislatively to do something about this i was really quite struck that both james and kelly put the emphasis on yes on organizing but also on enforcement i was really struck about that point that 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 you know, this might this might be as much an enforcement issue as a legislative issue that you know why is this not being enforced why does it take somebody seven years to go through the supreme court and i have read the supreme court ruling being a sort of sort of amateur legal eagle myself and you know i mean it is very it's not really on the one hand on the other hand um it's very kind of conclusive and clear as have been the other well, I think one of the decisions was two to one, but, 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 you know, it's very, it's very, very decisive. And I think, and I think it does raise the issue of why did it, why did it take the courts to do this? Well, maybe the courts of it, you know, why did it take the courts to do it? Question number one. Question number two. Okay. Now the courts have done it. Is this going to be seen as an isolated thing or, or is, are the enforcement bodies going to apply the principles? that this have clearly been established by the courts and, and presumably that is what should happen next. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
Well, we're in the outro. We are. I was very disappointed when you didn't fall for my April Fool's prank. Yes. Do you want to tell the listeners about it? I sent you a text message in the morning of April Fool's Day saying uh, that Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen want to do a crossover episode with us. The idea is born in the UK and it's kind of an overview of the situation here. Plus, what's the future for progressive ideas? I'm just heading into a doctor's appointment now, but should I go straight back with a yes? And what did I say? Well, at first, you, the first text message that came was, I think it's a maybe, which I thought, oh, he's on to me here. And then straight away, you followed, up, followed it up with, see if they feel the same way tomorrow, at which point I knew the game was up. Yes, you knew the game was up. And how did you respond? Did you respond in a mature way or an immature way? <laughs> I may have sent you a, a profanity. What did you say? I just put in all caps. You fucker. Now, I think you've let yourself down. You've let the class down. You've let the podcast down. You've let the listeners down. <laughs> haven't you, really? But most of all, I've let Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen down. You have, really? Back to them. <laughs> You, re- you have, really. Uh, now, this comes from Fionn Magoro. Fionn uh, emailed us to say this. Uh, the subject is French board game on class struggle. Hyde and Jeff, hoping you're well. It may have been raised with you in the past. I apologise. It's been a couple of months off from listening to my shame. I mean, that is pretty shameful, Fionn. You used to joke about Red Ed's childhood playing the board game Class Struggle. But were you aware of the French limited edition board game Capital? Created by two famous sociologists to draw attention to class war, which they believe has been escalated under the incumbent president, thought it may be of interest. And Fion provides a link. And I mean, it's it, it, apparently it's sold out in, uh, in less than three weeks. Board game lovers in France bought all 10,000 copies of Capital! Exclamation mark, a new game about class struggle, injustice and French politics created by French sociologists. Uh, Monique pinson Charlot who created the game with her husband, Michel, reads from a Capital playing card that says you are entering the exclusive club of individuals who own the world's most luxurious cruise ships. But not everyone can join the club. Anyway, it sounds like class struggle to me, doesn't it? We should send that to Camille and Benoit and they could play that on their podcast, which in some ways is a, a French version of Reasons to be Cheerful. Yeah, we could tell them it like, you know, you'll get the listeners um, trickling in. As a result, um, I think we should thank our guests, should we? I'd like to thank James Farrar, Kelly Housen and Martin Buttle. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Joel Pierce does all the research, background and guest booking. You can find more about that, by the way, by going to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, Joel is supported by Joe Kenyon from Goldfish London. We are supported by, and we say a big hello to Left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been hot. He's been cross. And these have been... Reasons to Eat Bonds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.